0: Uh, I remember the first time I observed the total eclipse of the Sun do you I was in Bible College up in northern Wisconsin and it was a very eerie moment as the whole earth darkened for just a few moments as the source of our light was blocked out by the moon I remember using a welder's helmet to look through, uh, to be able to see right at the sun as it started to emerge again from behind the moon's silhouette. It was a powerful reminder of the brilliance of the sun that we take for granted most days, don't we? I also love looking up at the stars and the planets at night. Um, I don't know, some of you may have this too. I have an app on my phone that um, it's called Google Sky Map. Anybody else have that one? Let's see if there's any fellow astronomers out here. Am I the only one? Really? Okay. Well, I like to look up at the stars. Oh, there's a couple. Okay. I look. I like to look up at the stars and try to figure out what they are and where the constellations are. And, oh, that's not a star. That's a planet. You know. And uh, J- anybody see Jupiter last week? It was really bright. Um, right out over the horizon here. Um, And on a dark night, sometimes those little twinkling lights above us are really bright. Uh, A full moon can really light up the sky too, can't it? Um, But then every morning, the sun returns, right? And suddenly all those other beautiful lights that we see at night disappear. We can't see them anymore. The greater light, as Genesis describes their son, has returned to rule the day. And the lesser night, as the lesser night does the night. Lesser light does the night. And that's similar to what Paul is doing here in our passage today. There's a lesser glory and a greater glory that we'll see in verses 7 through 11 here of chapter 3 of Second Corinthians. And then there's a wonderful fuller freedom that he teaches us about in verses 12 through 18. And all of this we'll see comes as the result, and this is the title of my message today, the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit. The wonderful Spirit of the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity, our comforter that Jesus gave to us when he returned to heaven. So let's explore with Paul what this amazing ministry of the Spirit consists of this morning, I think it'll be a blessing to you. It's a blessing to me, for sure. Let's look, first of all, at a greater glory, verses 7 through 11. In this passage, like Paul often does, he's working from the great to the greater, the great to the greater. And interestingly, I don't know if while we were reading this a minute ago, maybe this flashed in your mind, too, but a lot of these verses kind of sound like the book of Hebrews a little bit. That, did that come to any of your minds? Where chapter after chapter in the book of Hebrews, we, we read things like, Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. You know, Moses was the servant in the house, but Jesus is the son over the house. Uh, the high priest was a wonderful role and privilege, but we have a greater high priest who's a mediator of a better Covenant. And it just kind of piles on in the book of Hebrews. And that's a little bit what Paul is doing here as well in chapter 3. And so we have to look for, especially in these opening verses, we have to look for the if thens. The, the if this is glorious, then something else is more glorious. And this is what Paul's using. This is the technique he's using in verses 7 through 11. And the reason why I'm, I'm pointing this out to you and emphasizing it is because Paul is really emphasizing it. He does this four times in these five verses. So, so we, we need to hear this loud and clear. Let, let me show you where he does this. Verses 7 and 8. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. That's all the if part, right? Will not, here's the then, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? There's the first one, the first comparison. Moses was good and glorious, but this is even more. He does it again in verse 9, the very next verse. For if, there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. See it? He does it again. He does it again in the next verse, verse 10. And and here, think about that analogy I used about the, the greater lights and the lesser lights at the beginning. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Because of the glory that surpasses it. And then finally verse 11. Where he does it one more time. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. The point that Paul's making in these, in these five verses is that. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, as transient as it was, by design, it's fading, it's passing, it did have genuine glory. Just look at Moses' face, Paul says. Just take a look at Moses' face. That's what Paul says here. So the Old Covenant was good, was glorious. But there's something more glorious and better and permanent that has come. Verse 11. The Old Covenant was indeed to be temporary. But the New Covenant always was and always has been the goal of the Old Covenant. We were always moving forward to this and this is intended, and always was intended, to be permanent. Now keep thinking about these verses with me for a minute. On the one hand, when Paul calls the Old Testament the ministry of death, did you pick this up, verse 8? And the ministry of condemnation in verse 9. Kind of negative, right? He, he's kind of coming back to, isn't he, the, the idea that we looked at last Sunday in verses 1 through 6, the, the reason why the law, the Old Testament, became the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation is because it was outside of us. It was written on tablets of stone, right? It, it was given for healthy, for wholesome purposes. It was good. It's a good law. But because it was outside of us, it couldn't really change us on the inside. All it did was show us what really was on the inside, right? And we know what was on the inside. It was our sin. So our sin, which was on the inside, take these commandments that we've been given in the law and and uses those commandments basically to crush us and to beat us down. Because we can't keep them. We read last week in Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 12 and 13, that the law is good, that the law is not the problem. God's covenant, the Old Testament, wasn't really the problem even though it's called the ministry of death the ministry of condemnation it wasn't the law itself that was bad or that was the problem the problem is the sin in you and me and how we respond to God's law that's why he calls it the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation that's on the one hand now on the other hand now that the new covenant has come as we read last week, remember Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28, all those wonderful prophecies about what's going to happen when the new covenant comes, and we know the new covenant has come in Jesus. Jesus said it himself at the Last Supper, right? We had uh, communion here uh, a week ago, and I think Pastor Trey read it, uh, whoever was leading communion, that this is the new covenant testament the new covenant in my blood it's happening now it's here now the law is no longer outside of us like the prophet said now the law of god is written on hearts it's written in human flesh by the spirit of god we've been given new hearts and on those new hearts has been written god's law. Now that's a glorious thing in and of itself, when you stop and think about it. But in in what other way is this ministry of the Spirit more glorious than the Old Covenant? How is it greater? How does it shine brighter? I think Paul uh, spends a little bit of time on that here in this passage for us, because not only is it permanent, the New Covenant, but also it gives us The the second point of the message today gives us a fuller freedom. So not only is it a, a greater glory than the Old Testament, but now it's a fuller freedom. Look at verses 12 to 18. Since we have a hope. Since we have a hope that this new covenant has a greater glory, that the Holy Spirit of God is involved... He's written it on our hearts. And it's a permanent thing. It's not passing away like the old covenant was. This is is the permanent covenant. Since we have such a hope, Paul says, we are very bold. Not like Moses, he goes on to say. And remember, this whole section, Paul is, is trying to defend his apostleship. He's, he's, been under, he's always under attack, isn't he? He's been under attack. When we get to the later part of 2 Corinthians, we'll learn more about those super apostles that we've mentioned a few times and, and how they're attacking Paul and all that. And so he's defending himself. And here's one of the reasons he says, here's why we're bold. Here's, as he said last week, here's why we have confidence. And here's why, because our sufficiency is somewhere else. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our abilities. It's not in our talent. It's somewhere else. And, and Paul's continuing with that theme this week, saying it's in the Spirit. It's where, that's where our freedom comes from. That's where our hope, that's where our boldness comes from. Now, Paul has been echoing an Old Testament passage. And you may want to turn there and keep your finger there for this, this section. It's Exodus chapter 34, um, verses 29 to 35. He, he's kind of been using it a little bit as an echo or a, uh, a backdrop to verses 7, to 11, because you may have noticed the word glory is used a lot, right? It's used 10 times in this passage altogether. And whenever we hear glory used like that, one of the places we always think about is Exodus 34, when Moses, remember, prayed to the Lord and said, Show me your glory. And he takes him up on Mount Sinai and he puts him in the, the little cleft in the rock, and then he just exposes, you know, the, the backside of, of God. However that worked, you know, because he, 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 the front side would have been too much for Moses. So he would have died. But he exposed him, and Moses comes down, and he's glowing, right? So that's the context, and, and Moses, uh, Paul talked about Moses glowing already. So he's, he's pointing us back to this, this, this text in Exodus chapter 34. He wants us to be thinking about this, and he's going to continue to show us in these verses here that he's thinking about that episode and what happened there. So he's been using it as a backdrop, but now in these verses, in verses 12 to 18, it's basically like he he unfolds it and spreads it out on the kitchen table. And he's like, come on, gather around, take a look at this. See what we can see here. Moses met with God. And it left a, a physical, glorious beaming on his face. So he would come down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and and he would return to the people and he would speak to them with this visual brilliance. Then, if you have your, your finger in Exodus 34, you'll notice in this account that what Moses would do after he was done speaking God's words to the people, he would take a veil and he would cover up his face. Now, it's interesting that Exodus never tells us why he covered his face. Um, It's not until we get to the Apostle Paul here in 2 Corinthians that he fills in the blanks for us through the Spirit of God, through the inspiration of the Spirit. Now we know the reason why Moses veiled his face. And here's the reason. Look at verse 13. The reason why he covered his face is to hide this passing temporary glory. Verse 13, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The passing temporary glory on Moses' face was fading. It's going to pass away. That's evidence, Paul says, that the Old Covenant was never intended to be permanent. From day one, it wasn't intended to be permanent. It was always intended to be a means to an end, the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was intended to be a process by which God would fulfill His promises, starting all the way back to Abraham. Do you remember what God told Abraham? Um, he told him this several times, right? Started in Genesis 12, and then again in Genesis 15. Uh, the one I want to read for you is from Genesis 22. Remember, he's, he's up on Mount Moriah. He's just about to sacrifice Isaac. God stops him, and, and then God says this to him. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That was the promise he made all the way back to Abraham in Genesis. And the old covenant was planned all along to simply be the forerunner to the new covenant. And when the new covenant comes, the offspring of Abraham, who the new covenant reveals to us to be none other than Jesus of Nazareth, our offspring of Abraham, he would become God's blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we get the privilege of taking that message of that seed, of that offspring to all the nations of the world. But there's a problem. The Jews didn't receive their Messiah, did they? That's what John tells us. He came to his own, they didn't receive him. Paul says they couldn't even hear what God was doing in fulfilling this promise to Abraham whenever the Old Testament was read. They don't get it. And the reason they don't get it, Paul says, is because of hardened minds just like their ancestors in the wilderness. Look at verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, to this day, Paul says, first century, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read. Now, when that says whenever Moses is read, we know what he's talking about, right? the books of Moses, the law, the Pentateuch. Whenever Moses is read, a veil not, doesn't lie over their face. It lies over their hearts. Paul is saying that these, these Jewish unbelievers, even to his day, are confused, they don't understand, they're blinded, they're hardened. One author wrote and illustrated it this way. It's a little like a group of millionaires standing in line for food stamps amid a booming economy. Or it's like an Eskimo winning a vacation at a tropical location and wearing all his furs on the beach. Or it's like a grown man eating baby food. All cases force the question, do you not realize what has happened and what time you live in? Do you not recognize your surroundings? Do you not know what is yours if you would simply open your eyes to it? Unbelievers in Christ fail to see the new order that has dawned. They don't get it. As a result, their basic identity remains in the old covenant, even though they now live in the time of the new covenant, the veil of remains. So the next question to ask in our text, when was the veil removed for Moses? What exactly is going on here in Exodus 34? Anyway, Paul, I mean, and you need to pay attention to this because this is huge for Paul. Listen as I read Exodus 34, 34 and 35 and answer this question, when was the veil removed? Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. You tracking? So when was the veil lifted from Moses? When he went in where? He went into the place where God dwelt, right? Now this isn't the mountain. He's not talking about the mountain. He's not talking about going up to the mountain. He's talking about the tent, right? We call it the tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built yet. they're moving around the wilderness, they're taking up the tabernacle, and they're putting it down every time they move. When he would go into the tent of meeting to meet with God, the veil was lifted. And he would get his, you know, what what do they call it when they go in those uh, tanning booths? Yeah, he, he he would go into the shining booth there, right? And Moses would get all shined up. And then he would come out of the tent of meeting after speaking with God, and he would give the message to the people with his shiny face. And then he would put the veil back on. So think about these verses here in 2 Corinthians 3. When and where does Paul say the veil is removed for Jews and Gentiles in his day? In the first century, in the new covenant. Notice the end of verse what does he say? Only through Christ is it taken away. Do you see? It's almost like Paul is comparing Jesus with the tabernacle. Do you see that? it's only as we enter into Jesus, it's only as we come into union with Jesus that the veil comes off. Paul goes even further with it. Look at verse 16. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He's made a subtle shift here, right? In Exodus 34, It was when Moses alone turned to the Lord, went into him, that the veil was lifted. But look what Paul has done here. He's changed it just a little bit, hasn't he? This is the glory of the new covenant. He has just universalized what Moses alone experienced. Moses was the only one who had this experience. But now, he says, when one, verse 16, when one, not, not, just the, not just Moses, when one, anyone, it can be translated, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Christ becomes like the tent of meeting. And that's not surprising to us, right? Because the Apostle John told us in John 1.14 that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He tabernacled, He tented Himself among us. He came close so that we could see Him and come to Him and know Him. He is the place. He is the residence where we meet God with unveiled face. When we pray and we enter into God's throne room, it's only because we've entered into Christ first that that veil can be lifted. This brings Paul back to the Spirit of God. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. This is is one of those verses that's often taken out of context you know we see, we see the word freedom and we're like America uh, no it's not America where the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom now we'll talk about the freedom here in just a second but let's talk about the first part of the verse first cuz there, there you might there might be a possible misunderstanding here second Corinthians 3 have you noticed second Corinthians 3 is very trinitarian Father, Son, Spirit. Last week we saw all three of them in our text in verses 1-6. through six. And again here we see the Spirit of God, we see the Son of God because the Lord here in all of these verses, the Lord is not the, it's not the Lord with the small caps, remember? The Lord with the small caps, that's Jehovah, that's Yahweh, that's the I Am, the personal name of God the Father. It's not that Lord in these verses. It's the Lord speaking of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. So when we come to verse 17, this verse kind of makes us do a little double take. The Lord is the Spirit? Jesus is the Spirit? What, what are you saying, Paul? Well, even in the rest of verse four, uh, 17, which we'll point out in a second, he does show us a distinction. But, but I want you to see this too back in verses 1 through 6 because Paul has made the case Already, he's declared to us, he's shown us that Christ and the Spirit are interrelated. He's already shown us that, right? That Christ and the Spirit are on the same page. What Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and in the tomb, the Spirit takes and applies to us. The Spirit is not after his own purpose, his own agenda. He's not running off doing his own and jesus is not off doing his own thing the spirit and the lord are working together they're on the same page and i think that's the same thought here in verses uh, 7 through 18 the spirit comes and he gives us those new hearts that the prophets foretold and that jesus did the hard work on the cross to achieve The Spirit is the one who gives us those new hearts. The Spirit comes and brings the new life to us. We read that in verse 6 last week, didn't we? It's the Spirit who gives life. And it's the Holy Spirit who brings that life to us that Jesus provided through his resurrection from the dead. The Spirit is the one who gives us this fuller freedom, that Christ in his ascension and his eternal priesthood has bought for us, which we'll talk about here in a second. And so, again, Paul's s- simply saying the new covenant is even more glorious than the old covenant. And brothers and sisters, this, these are things that should stir your hearts. These are things that should encourage you to realize. A commentator, Murray Harris, writes about the freedom here. It's significant that this freedom is unqualified. It suggests that Paul does not wish to exclude any type of freedom that's indicated in the context, such as the freedom to speak and act openly, verse 12. Freedom from the veil over our hearts, verses 14 to 16. Whether the veil of spiritual ignorance concerning truths of the new covenant, or the veil of hard-heartedness, verses 13 and 14. It's a freedom from the old covenant, verse 14, or from the law and its effects, back in verse 6. It's the freedom to behold God's glory uninterruptedly, verse 18, which we'll get to. Or to conform to Jesus, also in verse 18. Or the freedom of access into the divine presence without fear. It's all of those things. He doesn't say it's this freedom. He says it's freedom. In fact, there's not even a verb in this sentence. It's just spirit of the Lord freedom. And this freedom in verse 17 is related to the boldness that Paul mentioned in verse 12, when he says we have a greater boldness. And this is what the apostles referring to when he gets down to verse 18. Look at verse 18 and, and notice the universalizing again. It's not just Moses anymore. It's, and we all... He's writing to the church at Corinth. Gentiles mostly, but Jews as well who have come to Christ. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And again, don't be confused by that. It doesn't mean that Jesus and the Spirit are, are one person. They're two persons. But we believe in the Trinity. Three persons. One essence. One god now you can't explain that and it'll boggle your mind if you try to sit and figure it out but it's what the scripture teaches so we believe it the spirit and jesus they're on the same page they're united together in this now what if you feel this morning as that verse says you're being transformed what if you come this morning you're like i don't really feel like i'm being transformed very much today or this week or this month i'm kind of in a in a slow patch here. I'm in a rough patch. Well, it's what the Scripture says. If you've entered into Christ, if the veil has been lifted, you are being transformed. Again, Harris writes this, in stark contrast with the radiance on Moses' face that faded because of the Old Covenant, the glory of the Lord that is reflected in believers' lives gradually Increases justified at regeneration, that point where we accept Christ, believers are progressively sanctified until their final glorification at the consummation lots of big words there but you know all of them justified declared not guilty happens at the moment of salvation right progressively sanctified sanctification the work of the spirit little by little day by day all through our lives this is one of the key verses in all of the scripture for progressive sanctification verse 18 and until our final glorification, glorification is when we become like Jesus. First John tells us that. When we see him, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. We'll be like Jesus. Finally, the sin will be part of that past. Finally, at the consummation, at the time of Jesus' return. This is how the Spirit of God, earlier in chapter 3, This is how he he made the Corinthians a letter from Christ. Remember that? Written on human hearts, verse 3. This is how in keeping with the Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36, this is how the Spirit is enabling us to become more and more like Jesus. Remember, Jesus was the perfect law keeper. And we are becoming transformed more and more and more into that image one day we will be holy now positionally right when god looks at us in christ we are holy right now that's justification but practically we know we're far from holy aren't we we're still struggling every day sometimes every hour with sin and temptation and this should be a great encouragement to you to know that the part of the ministry some of the primary ministry of the holy spirit is to change you transform you from glory to glory i want your hearts to be encouraged i want to read you i didn't put it on the screen because it's too much and some of you would try to write it down. You wouldn't get it also. Uh, I have, my notes are back at the, at, the, at the counter in the back if you want to look this up. But I want to read you quickly 21 glorious truths of progressive sanctification. This comes from a brother named Legan Duncan who wrote these out for us. Now think, think, think with me about this process of the Spirit changing us to be like Jesus, little by little, from glory to glory. There's, there's the picture, right, of progressive sanctification. Now, now, what do you notice about that picture? There's ups and there's downs, right? But what is the gradual direction of our lives? It's up. Little by little, ups and downs, setbacks and surges... But always moving more and more to the image of Jesus. Here are these 21 truths. Number one, God cares more about your sanctification than you do. And he's always working on it. Philippians 2.13. Number two, sanctification is first and foremost God's work. Justification is God's work for us. Sanctification is God's work in us. Number three, sanctification means you will You will progress because God's grace work always is efficacious in you. Number four, the Christian life is a life of freedom from our passage. When Jesus saves us, he frees us. And thus in the Christian life, we are and must and will be free. Not free from obedience, but free to obedience. You will want to do what you ought to do. And that is the only kind of true Christian freedom that exists. The freedom to be and do what God created and redeemed us to be and do. Any other thing that purports to be freedom is a sham. Number five, in progressive sanctification, we are set free from the bondage of sin's dominion, not to hope less passivity, but to hope full activity. Number six, the glorious truth of progressive sanctification means God will never give up on us and our growth even when we feel like giving up on ourselves and it. Number seven, God's grace is just as powerfully demonstrated in our sanctification as our justification. Number eight, progressive sanctification is ultimately encouraging. Even when we are discouraged by ongoing sin or lack of progress. Why? Why is it encouraging? Even in our failures, even in our frustrations. Because it and we are God's work. Number nine, in progressive sanctification, we celebrate the truth that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, Philippians one six. Number 10, in progressive sanctification, we learn that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10. Number 11, in progressive sanctification, we come to appreciate, Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. But, not, but the freedom that Christ came and died for and was raised again from the dead to give is a freedom that does not give opportunity to the flesh, but empowers us through love to serve one another. Galatians 5:13 and 14. Number 12, progressive sanctification encourages us to remember that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Number 13, in progressive sanctification, we realize that God has in view the full restoration of his image in you. That is why Paul prays, Ephesians 3.19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse uh, number 14. "Progressive sanctification is how God makes us to be like Jesus, conformed to the image of His Son," Romans 8:29. 15. "Because of progressive sanctification, we can pray, "O oh Lord, everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault." That's a prayer from St Augustine. Number 16, progressive sanctification is what God does in us so we can obey Jesus' new commandment, John 13, 34. Progressive sanctification is how we are able to love one another just as I, Jesus, have loved you by God's work in us. We can at least make a start at obeying that colossal directive rather than being crushed under its weight. 17, progressive sanctification is how Christians respond to hundreds of imperatives, commands in the New Testament without becoming legalists. 18, the good news of progressive sanctification is that it is a divine grace work designed to give us hope, as John Newton understood. Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. 19, the truth of progressive sanctification shows how God's sovereignty and our responsibility work together in the Christian life. Number 20, progressive sanctification is a joy-producing, happiness-increasing Bible truth. That's why we sing, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be. Happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Number 21, the good news of progressive sanctification reminds us of the astonishing truth that God was working on our sanctification from eternity past, long before creation, before we ever existed. That's why Paul says we were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. To put it provocatively, trillions of years ago, God was already preparing your progress in sanctification in the Christian life. Now that is good news. Here are a few more verses that champion this wonderful teaching of God's Word. Some of them we've, we've hinted at already. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If God predestined you for good works, he's going to take it all the way to the end. It's promised. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not so sure some days. You can be sure. You can take it to the bank. God will finish the work he started in you. That's encouraging, isn't it? Colossians 3, 10, and 11, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. From glory to glory, we're being made more and more like Jesus. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back to the front. Let me bring this to a conclusion here rapidly. Paul's message this morning is simple as he continues to defend his apostleship to the Corinthians, he is telling them, we don't need to go backwards to Judaism. We don't need to go looking for some special spirituality that requires wearing a yarmulke or blowing the shofar, those ram's horns, or or lighting candles during Passover. You can do those things, that's fine. But that's not a greater spirituality. We don't need to go backwards and we don't need to go chasing after the super apostles either as they offer us some kind of higher life we have greater glory now today and we have fuller freedom and it's all through christ alone through the spirit of god these verses that we've read today and actually all of chapter three and all of chapter four and probably all of chapter five are verses that you should consider committing to memory, brothers and sisters. You'll want to remember them when you have troubles in your marriage and when you have issues with your kids and when you face problems in your workplace. You'll want to meditate on these verses when you're dealing with your in-laws or outlaws, when you're overwhelmed by the dark clouds of depression, when the way before you is bleak and blurry and you can't see. Christians, you have the freedom, the access, and the boldness to do what only really Moses could do in the Old Covenant, but with even greater glory and full of freedom. You can approach God and voice your anguish, and know that He hears you. You have His promise. And as the writer of Hebrews put it, you have a great high priest whose priesthood continues. Now listen to this. Christ's priesthood continues forever. So that whoever comes to God through Him will be saved to the uttermost, as the Scripture says, because He always lives to make intercession for you. He doesn't give up. Listen to the words from the final verse of the song we're about to sing. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Brothers sisters, let's continue to be faithful. Let's rest in the transforming grace of the Spirit of God. You know, you can rest there. You can rest there. He will finish his job in you and me. You can write it down. And one day soon in heaven, we'll take our place. That will be glory of glories, won't it?